It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. to another episode of Relentlessly Resilient, where real people share real-life experiences and the tools they developed to move forward and live their best lives. I'm Jenny Taylor. And I'm Michelle Scharf. Today, I'm very excited to speak with Sonia Nordstrom. She is a rescue worker. She has rescued dogs, and she has had an incredible life experience um, that she's going to come on and share with us today. And it's rather timely in light of what's going on down in Miami. We're verging on the 20-year anniversary of the Twin Towers. And Sonia, welcome to the show. And tell us about your history and your dogs and and what you've been involved in. Uh, Thanks so much for having me. I'm old and I've been retired for several years now, (laughs) but, um, but I'm still working dogs. So I got my education in electrical engineering, and then became an FBI agent. So I was an FBI agent for 23 years. And about four years into that career, I discovered search and rescue canine work. And I had worked on some kidnap investigations. I was working violent crimes. Um, That morphed into working crimes against children, internet crimes against children. So in parallel with that, I started working and training in a volunteer capacity, with search and rescue dogs. And with the advent of cell phones and uh, technology, fewer people were getting lost, and the people we were looking for were not in a position to call out because they were deceased. Mm. So my work with the dogs became more um, human remains recovery, which included the criminal aspects and a little bit of the disaster aspects, as well as just people who were lost and expired in the woods. Or Wow. Natural I mean, just setting. just right off the bat, I'm thinking, wow, this is such a unique yeah. life experience that most of us have no clue about. You know, we watch the news and we see all oh, the buildings collapsed in Miami or we've all remember 9-11 and that happened or there's a fire or a missing hiker. But I am really excited to hear your stories today, Sonia, how you've walked this journey, experiences you've had that are probably had by very few in today's society. Very yeah. unique perspective. Yeah, well... I was an FBI agent for 23 years, and more than half of that was working Crimes Against Children Matters, um, involved in several several serial kidnap homicide investigations, not as a case agent, but as uh, a resource for those investigations. So I had a caseload, and then in my spare time, I was an extra duty was as an evidence response team member when I was in Los Angeles. And basically specializing in body recovery with canines. So my volunteer work lapsed over into the professional side. So with my dogs, I was deployed overseas, um, Mexico, to the Pentagon, and also supporting other local disasters. So within the search and rescue community, there are FEMA um, disaster dogs that are deployed across the country. So currently in Miami, they're working task force you know, FEMA task force teams with their canines. 
I went to the Pentagon as an FBI resource um, after 9-11 for strictly recovery. And at that time, FEMA did not have recovery dogs. They were live find only dogs. Very interesting. Uh, yeah. yeah, I'm just picturing that. So you were there at the Pentagon in the aftermath of 9-11 when it would not have been feasible to be recovering a survivor anymore. Yeah, I think we went in about, I don't know, seven to ten days later and spent about eight or nine days. Wow. And predominantly we were working out in the north lot where they had been taking all of the... Um, the debris? The debris, and basically they had teams that were teams of people. You'd have about 40 people on a pile, on a given pile that had been spread in the lot, looking for personal effects, looking for classified documents from the Pentagon, looking for um, human remains, and looking for plane parts for sort of the four categories. And so obviously I was there with the dog looking for human remains, and as were many other dogs. So, yeah, and so I guess the question then becomes, how do you remain motivated? I've always considered myself to have a big advantage because when you work a dog, you've got to be happy. You've got to be positive. You've got to be encouraging. You've got to support the animal. Um, You can't just fall apart or the animal, they're sensitive creatures and they tune into their handlers. And if the handler falls apart, the dog will fall apart. And then, and then you're not doing your mission. So I always, at these scenes, it's hard not to get wrapped into the heaviness of the scene. It's hard not to just focus on all those personal things that you see and focus on the lives that are lost and the weight of just tackling it. When I look at that Miami disaster, I, I can't even, even having been to many disasters, I cannot fathom what they're having to just maneuver, just the mechanics of it and the organization of it and the, the weight of all of it is, um, it's quite remarkable what they're, what they're able to do. That is remarkable. Sonia, can you back up and tell us what's it like to become a canine handler? What's the training like? Do you train your own dog? Are they trained by someone else and then sent to work with you? I have very little knowledge of what this world looks like outside of what I've seen in the movies. So can you tell us kind of the backstory behind a handler and the dog? Yeah. In, in the vast majority of search and rescue, search and recovery dogs in this country, they are owned, trained and fielded by their handler. Unlike a police dog that is brought in typically from Europe as a green dog, they're sort of semi-green, you know, they're pre-trained a little bit and then they get to a handler and then the handler goes through a school and then they deploy. It's typically in the search and rescue. I mean, we have people, and I'm also president of a canine team right now, Great Basin Canine Search and Rescue. And our, our people typically come in with a puppy. I mean, there's a particular, they come in with, you know, even an eight week old puppy sometimes. And I've started all of my own dogs. So I'm on dog number six. Oh my oh, goodness. Wow. Yeah. Well, over 26 years. Always, you know, they don't... always the same type of puppy. Are there certain breeds? It seems there would be certain breeds that lend themselves better to this type of work. Definitively, there are breeds that are preferred. And that goes also to personality. And I talk about my canine imprint was when I moved to California, I started training with police canines. And of course, 
I was so impressed with the the hunt and the drive and the commitment and the seriousness and the power of the police dogs, the German Shepherds and Dutch Shepherds and Malinois. So my first dog washed. She had been a pet and I had tried her. She was a mix from West Virginia. And I spent two years beating my head against the wall under wonderful trainers. So it, it wasn't, the training was fantastic. The dog was not appropriate. And she had brilliant moments that kept me hanging on. And then I finally, I'm like, okay, it's not going to work unless the stars align. So then I got a German Shepherd, a very well-bred working line German Shepherd. And he was my first partner that was fielded. He's the one I went to the Pentagon with. And then um, uh, he tragically died while on a mission. He jumped out of a parking garage. Um, oh, and my then goodness. It was, that's my biggest trauma in yeah. life, which I guess I should count myself lucky, but it was still horrible. Um, oh so my we goodness. had a, a good conversation about this when she called me, and, and I was like, wait, what? He, yeah, back up. He Tell jumped, me what happened. Like, how does the dog just jump out of a parking garage? But explain this, because I had no idea. I did not know this. Um, working dogs are bold. They leap before they think. They leap before they look. Dogs don't have depth perception. They follow their noses. I've had dogs practically walk into a wall as they're following their nose. And it was a a fluke accident. I turned my back. I I said, take a break. And he jumped out of the car and left like he was jumping in a pool. Oh, my God. I can't even imagine. And you are so close with these. I mean, you live with these dogs. I mean, they're... You you put your heart and soul into them and you put every waking minute into them. And the other interesting thing about working a dog is unlike a human you know as a human as an FBI agent as a rescuer as even an EMT like I I was an EMT for 10 years you know you go to course you go to your class you you know you take your exams and then you do a little bit of continuing education here and there and then you have your field work but you retain it because you have this understanding that I have to remain current and I have to be skilled a dog You train and train and train and train and train throughout its lifetime. So to the dog, it's a game, but you don't just say he's trained, he's certified. Now he can sort of just be pulled off the shelf, right? We can go to firearms training. As an agent, I go to firearms training and I have my quals every four months. I can theoretically put that gun on the shelf for a year and still come out and shoot 100 if I want to, right? So. It, granted, the muscle memory. Well, I can't. But, it, but, but I maybe can't. you can. <laughs> <laughs> She's but, got enough saying, years of experience, <laughs> right? But I'm just. But as a dog, the dog has to be constantly worked and challenged and exposed. And 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 as a human, I can say, well, I have this knowledge. I can apply it in this context. With a dog, you actually have to put it in that context or else the dog says, well, why are we here? I only work in the wilderness. Why am I working in a building? Or I only work on cars. Why am I sniffing a truck? You know, so for dogs. Oh, interesting. I they, didn't think about You know, them. you have to really broaden. And it's interesting because you see them as they mature. They learn to problem solve through all of this. And they get more efficient and they just sort of get very fluid and as a handler, you're constantly, because the dog is living a working lifetime in eight to 10 years. And there's a lot of change in that maturity. You know, humans change and grow and get experience, but it takes decades. Dogs do it in a matter of, you know, there's, they sort of hit their stride at four or five years old. And then all of a sudden at eight, they're kind of losing their 
bodies a little bit. So it's kind of this weird, ever-changing thing. And in the human remains aspect, um, we really can't practice exactly what we're asking them to do. My current older dog that's retiring has found, has helped, gone to Europe to help find World War II remains. Oh, my goodness. Wow. And then the next week, I'm taking him up in the mountains for somebody that might have expired two days earlier. I don't have a little dial on his back to say, hey, dude, we're looking for something 75 yeah. years old. Older now, bones, newer looking. bones. Yeah. So it's um, so with a dog, it's the amount of effort and, and, um, and involvement and connection and relationship that the handler gets. It's like being a parent it's like being a tiger mom right you're you're taking your kid to that piano recital and you're sitting through everything it's it's um you really invest heart and soul in it and, and it's they, a constant training you're constantly all daily training yeah. yeah it doesn't have to be daily but the bottom line is it's never done it's the lifetime of the dog whether it's for maintenance or whether it's for expansion um or enhanced skills it's lifetime that is fascinating. I'm I'm loving this because, like I said, coming into this conversation, this is all very new to me. Maybe I've seen it on the news or in a movie, but I've appreciated what you've taught us about kind of the background of the field in general, what it is to be a dog handler, a dog trainer, and then, of course, these canines who do just such great rescue and recovery work. We're going to take a quick break and then come back in, and we'd love to have you share with us some of the particular instances or rescues you've been on and maybe some of the lessons learned about resilience and things there. We'll be right back. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America, but this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, We'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. All right, Sonia, we are back. Can you tell us now, maybe, I don't know if there's a particular rescue mission that stands out or certain circumstances you have faced where you've really kind of been in the heat of the fire, lessons you and your dog have learned, uh, maybe the applicability that we might be able to take into human life. I, I just don't even know what to ask you because I'm just fascinated by this entire thing. So I'm going to let you take the lead and just teach us, just share with us. Sure. When we look at 9-11, I think people first sort of learned about search and rescue dogs when they saw the Oklahoma City bombing. Yeah. And then, of course, 9-11, by then people had ramped up and, and there were formal programs for it. Um Basically what, and again, I have to say, that's just magnitude and volume. It's no more serious than the person who's missing their loved one up in the mountains, right? right. So it's just, it's the extended duration. It's the, there is a gruesome factor there. Um, well, and, and so, the Oklahoma and the Pentagon and, and the towers, all of those things, those were mass amounts of people, right? Right. The, massive, the, it, yes. it, it was uh, a massive response, right? Uh, an absolutely mass and a duration of response. It right. goes on and on and on. And you know, some people at Fresh Kills they were there for months trying to do things. So it obviously takes its toll. Um, 
so for me personally, and I, I think they're probably, I can't speak for every, you know, person that does recovery. I think many people come into these professions, even even when I came into search and rescue, what do we do? We think, oh, I'm going to get a dog and it's going to find a missing Boy Scout and everybody's going to be happy. I don't think anybody gets into it thinking, oh, I'm going to go find dead people. And that's generally what the mission, you know, Ends that's my being, mission for yeah. the last several dogs. So it's certainly not a happy thing. But for me, as I mentioned before, you have to maintain sort of that left side brain objectivity. I have to be motivated for my dog. I also get that companionship. I mean, there's a reason why veterans are with PTSD are being given animals to help them with PTSD. There's sort of this raw, calming, wagging tail, happy body, just the comfort. I mean, for, for years, people have been studying the effect and the calming um, nature of animals on humans. Right. People do horse it's yoga, just, you know. <laughs> it's so, the unconditional so love of those animals. I mean, they, they really model that in a way that is good for humans. <laughs> It's measurable. Right. It truly is measurable. I mean, it lowers heart rates, and it's just there's sort of this this ability. They're they're quite remarkable. So, so when you're working with them, I can't be a downer because the dog will feed off that and say, "What am I doing wrong?" The dog will kind of take it personally. And I don't know if you heard stories where they, you know, at the World Trade Center in particular, they said, "Well, we'll hide people because the dogs are getting quote depressed that they're not finding people." I don't believe that. I believe that the dogs are basically, everybody's overwhelmed, everybody's stressed, the environment is painful. I mean, it's physically painful. Breathing is painful. All of these things are difficult. So everybody, including the dogs, they all start to fall apart. And when dogs go to train, it's a big game and everything's fun and they have a lot of success. And now you're asking them to walk over glass and sharp and difficult and hard breathing and tough conditions like in in florida right now they're working in extreme temperatures and that's why we select these these very highly driven dogs that'll work through fire because they just have this internal genetic drive to to do what they do um but as the human element it's my job to be part of the solution so what always has driven me whether it's a kidnapping or whether it's body recovery or whatever um, I can't change what has happened, but I can contribute to a more positive outcome or a resolution or whatever words people want to use. I, I don't love the word closure. I prefer answers. I think people always want answers and they want to know why. So for me, I can compartmentalize and just focus all of the energy on mission orientation, getting it done, doing the best I can being really driven like my dog i need to be driven when i go back to the hotel at night like i did in in the pentagon i'm sitting watching these you know horrific individual stories and i can lose it on my own but when i go back to the site i'm on i'm on task i'm on target and i can't be wallowing so, and so then yeah. occasionally when you're working you'll see something that'll kind of bring you back to the reality of how horrible it is but you just have to tune it out and get back to work I'm curious, is that a trait you've always had? Were you were you kind of like that maybe as a young adult and that's what drove you into a field like FBI and like canine work? Or is that something you've kind of acquired and developed over time, that ability to compartmentalize? Because I know a lot of people who really cannot 
and would not yeah. be suited to this type of work. And yet to hear you be, you're, you're so objective, you're so matter of fact, this is what it is. Is is that something you've kind of developed over time or is that just kind of part of your base personality? I think it's probably my genetics. Um, okay. I, I would classify myself as more left brain than most females. I was left engineer. I mean, that's definitely not, right. I'm not the emotive drama person. So I think, and also I was a classical violinist. So the idea of pursuing goals and getting things done and I can't go for a leisurely bike ride you know I have to like push so it probably is part of a compulsive nature so just um, just like there are certain dog breeds suited to this there are certain personality types I mean surely not everyone would yeah. make a good rescue worker let's be honest well it, clearly if the dogs it, w- what I hear you saying is dogs are very empathic they pick up on human emotion and that plays into their performance levels. So if if that's true, you you really do need handlers that have the ability to compartmentalize, which typically we see as a more masculine trait. Um, you know, I I think it is one that can be developed, but probably not maybe from someone who's super emotional. Maybe, maybe you start with that both. tendency, yeah, yeah. and that's your life of experience both. sharpens it. Yeah, but then the question would be. If it's not in your nature, how much more of a toll would it take on you? Right. If you're constantly and fighting how, your genetics. And how effective would you be in the role? Can you tell us, take us for a minute, let's say you're in the Pentagon, you're in the hotel, you're watching the news. What do those breakdowns feel like or look like? For a person who is more more logical than emotive, surely at some point the emotion gets to you. Can you walk us through that and then how you kind of regroup for another day back on the scene? Yeah, on site, um, on site, there were those moments where you'd everything was just sort of a mess, right? And then on site, you'd see something recognizable, like a like a tray table or wings off of an employee or uh, a pet carrier, and it would sort of jolt you back into, oh my god, I can't believe what I'm doing right now. <laughs> and then you'd then you'd get eyes back on the dog, and he'd be doing something, and then you're back. So it was just these little flashes that would sort of yikes it kind of takes your breath away and then you have to keep eyes on the dog and it's a dangerous place there's trucks moving and there's bells and it's noisy and so you just have to stay focused it's not really a choice um and it was a long day and then you get back to the hotel and and uh, the tv was go on which was probably a mistake and but hard to avoid at that time everyone had the tv on nonstop then absolutely yeah and and you know, you want to know what's going on. So, um, and that that's a place for sort of a decompression. I wouldn't call it breakdown, but of course I'd cry every night, you know, and then I'd go back and refresh and you get it out of your system and, and go in for more. I mean, my dog even, he was woofing and, and running in his sleep. Whenever I did these long missions with, with the dogs, I see it in them. They're they're working in their sleep. It's so intense. It's the weirdest thing. He'd be barking and, and his feet were going. and and um, But I still had the comfort of him with me, right? right. Because, you know, we're just there. And, and, and I'll tell you, at the Pentagon in particular, it's this horror scene, but it, in my memory, which of course memory evolves over time, it was one of the most positive things I ever did. The energy there, the everybody that hundreds of people there all working toward this common goal, whatever that goal was, it was to do good, right? Whatever their role was, it was to do good. And every person there. 
you know, Red Cross was there and, and, you know, Salvation Army was there. They had tents of equipment to give us anything that we needed. We had people running around, you know, bringing us stuff. We had vets on site. Um, There were flight attendants that were, you know, doing food lines for people during breaks. We had um, kids that drawn, you know, with crayons, little thank you notes. I mean, it was just such an amazingly positive energy of, helping right everybody there, well, there wanted to help we had a moment in this country where we really gathered around one another and said we're we've got each other's backs and i think that that illustrates it so perfectly right it was pretty amazing so when you were on scene that's the energy it's like we have a job to do and we're gonna do it there's such motivation in the job right so even as horrible as it is of course you want to go out and do do the right thing. How do you regroup the dog? I mean, I can, as a human being, you know, like you said, you cry, you cry, you, you get a night's sleep, you get up, you go back to the site. When the dog does get either overstimulated or over just exerted physically, their paws are hurting from climbing on the glass, do you... Do you as the handler get to kind of set the shift that that dog can handle? Do you sometimes say, hey, you know what, we're not going to work today because he's really got to kind of regroup, whether it's the physical or the empathic emotive side? How do you help a dog get regrounded? I'm I'm just thinking so much of this in my life. I don't train dogs, but I do have a lot of small children. And I'm seeing similarities where when I'm up keyed and really tense and really kind of on my edge, my kids pick up on that. And the environment in our home reflects that. And I sometimes need to be the one to step aside and regroup, but sometimes I need to help the child regroup. How do you help this highly skilled, trained animal to regroup? And how do you know when that's necessary? Well, the way they worked it in there in particular, basically you'd go out, you'd work a certain amount of piles, and then you'd go through a decon station, and then you'd bring them back and kennel them. And then you'd rotate through the day doing that. Um, if a dog wasn't doing well, you'd pull it. Um, mine tended to get what, cause I was also at the luck and cheetah mudslide and with a different dog and mine tend to get, they get equally motivated in a weird way. Like they, they get very serious. They don't want attention from anybody. They're, they're in their zone get out of my way. I got stuff to do. Well, I think that that's um, you, right? They're picking up on um, your, your personality. Again, I go to genetics. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, pick, I pick, after the German Shepherd, I've had four Dutch Shepherds. I mean, these yeah. are not faint of heart dogs. And the same German Shepherd, I had taken him on some on some long homicide investigations where I was going day after day after day. And he would practically be asleep, literally practically be asleep. And then all of a sudden, he his head would pop and he'd just go. He he could practically be in his. It's kind of like if you're driving with a dog and you go by a skunk and the dog wakes up in the back of the car and <laughs> smells it. So I think the last thing to ever shut off in their brain is their nose. But we select for a dog that can handle that. And and if the tool is it is it is a tool. And if the dog is not working, if he's shut down, if he's exhausted, if he's sore, if it becomes negative. You can't keep working him because then you're assuming that he's working when he's not, right? Some of them look like they're working, but they're not. So they're just going through the motions, kind of like people. They're going through the motions, but they're not focused. But basically, dogs are working for a toy or a treat. 
and I would come off that. Hey, that's like my kids too. They just want to work (laughs) for a toy or a treat. Like I'm taking (laughs) parenting, parenting notes I learned from a canine handler. Thank you, Sonia. I can't, I'm a dog trainer now, and I can't tell you how many people ask me if I'll train their children. Yeah, could you just come over? Like, I will, I will supply all the treats. Yes. Boundaries and motivation. It's a great combination. Um, but basically, every time he got something, and actually in that environment, that particular environment, there were many successes in terms of the dog. So he got rewarded every time. Mm-hmm. So he's out there, woohoo, this is, you know, it versus what's going on now in Miami those live fine dogs and, and even the World Trade Center, there may not be. I don't know. I mean, if, if there is somebody to find, maybe one dog will get it. But those dogs are working in horrible conditions, in incredibly dangerous and stressful conditions, and they're not likely to get success. And that's <sighs> not what dogs are actually working, right? They're not yeah. out there like machines going for days on end, getting nothing. When we train them, we have, okay, we're going to put somebody here and they get success and they get success. So they want to find you know, that reward. That. Yeah. 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 So they're working for reward. And, and that's why the stronger the dog, the longer it can work without that reward, because there's joy in the work itself. Right. Yeah. And I think that goes for people too. Absolutely. There's, there's satisfaction in the work itself. We don't have to have this immediate gratification all the time. Yeah, that's Um, awesome. Hey, when we come back, um, we've got to take one more short break. When we come back, let's talk about those resiliency factors. Sure. And uh, we'll be back in just a moment. Sonia, we're back, and this has just been really fascinating. Jenny, when I spoke with Sonia, first of all, somebody had heard her speak up at some conference of something, and um, I can't remember what it was. It's a very detailed backstory. <laughs> I like that. It's very detailed. Um, but anyway, someone had recommended her for the podcast, and when she talked to me, she goes, I've kind of listened to a couple of your episodes. I don't think I'm right. Like, I I haven't had any big life terrible things happen to me. Um, I still have my parents. Um, you know, I haven't had children. I'm single. I just haven't had the experiences that some of the, the people that you've interviewed for your show. But then we got talking and I think we spent like, I don't know, a couple hours on the phone, didn't we, Sonia? Maybe. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it was a long conversation. It was great. And I'm thinking, are you crazy? Like, of course, you're perfect. So much to unpack here. So So much. So many things. So as we've been talking today, I have just noticed like every single characteristic that psychology today or, or people that study resiliency would list in somebody for for attributes of resiliency. And so the first one is always that ability to to detect the problem. And of course, when you go out, Sonia, you, you, you already know the problem, right? The pr- problem's already been delivered. Yes, but I have the ability to depersonalize it. Right. Because it's not immediately me. Right. right. It's, it's not, I mean, I, I can't fathom the loss of a child. How could you, I mean, you can't depersonalize it. You can't rationalize it. You can't. So in my circumstances, if I were to relate I always have that available to me <laughs> right? because it's not that it doesn't make sense, right? It, there are things that should never have happened to people that do happen to people. 
That's right. And that's not what I'm dealing and, with. And you've seen that over and over. And yeah. it, you may be fortunate enough where it, it hasn't happened in your lifetime, these kind of hard, difficult things. But you have been exposed to the worst of the worst repeatedly in your career. I'm thinking yeah. of the service you've provided because let's say you're looking for the hiker or you're trying to find the remains in a collapsed building or something. What a gift it is that you can walk in and say, hey, guys, I can handle this objectively so that the family does not have to be the one digging for that body part or so that the loved one doesn't have to be the one up all night with the flashlight trying to find the the location of the fall from the hike. I mean, of course, they'll be looking themselves, but I think what a gift it is that you can you and your dogs can come in almost third party mm-hmm. and say hey we'll take it from here we'll compartmentalize it we'll let you the family the loved ones even even the local city officials and things not have to be in the thick of it i i think you're kind of under crediting yourself I, I think for the so weight too. the weight you carry i'm grateful that it doesn't completely destroy you but on behalf of those that you have served and helped i think what a service you provide to not have to make me be the one go look for my loved one in that pile of rubble. Yeah. So, well, I mean, every single person on scene is doing that. Every firefighter. Sure, sure. Speaking of your officer, speaking of your profession, person, yes, right, absolutely. That is, and every doctor. I mean, every single person in these service industries deals with this on a daily basis. I do find that I relate better to people in those industries because they are dealing with real things, right? right? Real life and death there. Um, and it's not to discredit other professions, but I have a hard time when people get wrapped around the axle over something silly. <laughs> when, when I know that there's some really... When you've seen so on. much worse. Yeah. Yeah. So the and next... Even, even working bank robbery, I worked bank robbery in Los Angeles and I'm down in South Central and, and seeing how children are living in, in terrible circumstances. So when you see all that, I think it gives you perspective, and perspective allows you to be rational and comparative, and it allows you to realize, I mean, out of every bad thing, usually there's a door that opens or there was a way to make it better somehow, and to appreciate and be grateful for things that you don't have to endure, maybe. Yeah. So, and what you just stated, you just went from like two to... uh six on the the list of the following characteristics, which are, you know how to handle your emotions, how to keep calm in a stressful situation, you're realistic, trusting yourself and being empathetic. You covered all of those in just well, what you said. Right. <laughs> I, I, it, you know, you covered all of those. The other two are, they are able to motivate themselves and clearly you have a love for these animals and a love for serving your fellow man and being able to be that voice of reason or that that confident um, person that's willing to walk into ugly situations, which let's face it, I'm not willing to do that. Uh, I don't have any desire to do that. My life has been a train wreck of its own. <laughs> I don't need to invite more pain, right? So, right. I mean... The ability that you are able to do this, to motivate yourself to, to be there and to do it year after year, you've, you've made a career doing this. This isn't like something you do because you thought, oh, 
this would be a nice thing to kind of do. This is something you're clearly passionate about. It's hard not to be, right? I mean, yeah. so, and, and if I were to say sort of my solace, if I need it or look for it, I, and I know it sounds trite, but I surround myself by animals and things of beauty. I typically live where I can feel that I've escaped into nature. Um, I don't, I, I have space. I always have, I mean, I lived on the ocean at one point. I, I live out in the country now. Um, I go up in the mountains on the weekend. So just that space and realizing that the world is big and that my issues are small, relatively speaking, um, and there's a vastness that we don't control. So that kind of works for me to decompress and to just look at beautiful stuff and say, you know, it's, um, I was up in the mountains this weekend. It's absolutely magnificent. And to think that there's all these little creatures there that are trying to make, make their way. And I'm just one of those little creatures trying to make my way. So I can't put all this drama on myself and be all self-centered about it. Right. Right. You know, which kind of lends to the last characteristic, which is um, people that are resilient don't ask the why. Like, why me? Why poor me? Why this? Why that? They ask how. Like, how can they get out of this situation? In your situation, you're asking, how can I be of service to serve a family in having answers, right? And, and well, that- I'm a fixer. I'm kind right. of a fixer. I mean, I'm an engineer at heart, too, right? I want right. to fix stuff. You know, don't, don't show me something broken and think I'm not going to try to fix it. So it's a little of everything. But I have a very dear friend, and sometimes there are keepers in life. Um, people say things and they never leave my brain. And he said, why not me? Right. Why yeah. not me? Why would I not be the one to get cancer? Why would I not be the one to have a disease? Why would I not be the one to be in a car wreck? And it's a really, I mean, obviously we don't wish it on anybody, but it's a really good perspective as opposed to the wallowing. Right. I think there's no place for wallowing in any of this. Right. You need to digest and you need to take your time, but to sink into that abyss, um, it's, there's no getting out. So if you can look at it as sort of this huge expansive thing, I mean, millions and millions of people are dealing with this, um, dealing with all kinds of different things, horrible things, you know, I love, I I love that. Why not me? And I'll tell you, my husband never said, why me? Why me? When he got diagnosed with cancer. And that is not what, why not me? Why not me is a very different statement Mm -hmm. than why me? Um, Uh, I remember we were up at Huntsman's and we had received treatment and we were on our way um, out. My husband wasn't feeling well. And while the elevator was going down um, from the chemo station that we were at, a little child got in and had been there clearly for a long time and had an, an arm that was like wrapped onto a board clearly for chemo treatments. And this child was you know, just at walking age. And I remember my husband, I didn't speak at all, but I remember him staring at that child. And, uh, when we left and got in the car, he just said to me, he's like, you know, I've gotten to do a lot of great things in life. And I look at that little child and I think I would rather it be me then yeah. it be that That's child. exactly what I'm thinking. Then exactly. not yeah. wish like, it on someone else. Why couldn't yep. that be me? Right? Why couldn't yeah. that be me? Right. Yeah. Kid? 
And yeah. and being able Thanks. to find the gratitude in a life well lived, you know, and, and, and that is what resiliency is, uh, being able to find the, the positive nature uh, within a negative experience. Mm-hmm. Well, I love, Sonia, where you've said that your perspective allows you to be rational. I think so much of life that feels so overwhelming and so difficult and just literally damning us is because we get into that dark emotive state. Yeah. And it's hard to be rational. It's hard to think. It's hard to pull ourselves out. And yet the perspective you have, I wrote down, you said the world is big and so my issues are small small comparatively. Regardless of how big any one thing, any one of us are facing, it's really, really small compared to everything horrific that happens on a global level every day. And if we could keep our place in this grander scheme of things and realize, okay, my heart is hard, my heavy is heavy, but I'm not alone. I'm not the only one going through difficult things. I'm not the only one ever to face this or that trial and to be able to step back a little bit more rational, a little more logical, um, not to ignore the emotions, because of course that doesn't do us any good, but to help them find their proper place. What I've written down about you, Sonia, is I feel that your life, combined, combine it with your genetics, your experience, your work, your labor, your years, I've written down you have developed resilience as a second nature. Mm-hmm. I don't know that you necessarily... Um, you know, even talking, you're kind of dismissing, oh, it's not a big deal, it's this or that. Michelle and I are thinking, wow, you got a lot to teach me here, girl. Keep going. And so, but I think. I, I, I was on the phone with her for hours. I mean, I was impressed. And I'm thinking, are you kidding me? You, you are the picture of resiliency. But how beautiful I think that as you develop resiliency, we often speak of it like a muscle. Mm-hmm. Once you get to the point where the muscle works and the muscle is strong and you continually exercise it. You probably don't think about whether the muscle is strong or weak or not. You just get to work and use the muscle. And that, for me, is a great lesson rather than thinking, oh, this thing I have to lift is so heavy. Well, then I better build a stronger muscle because, relatively speaking, that's what I've got to pick up today. So, mm-hmm. Sonia, I love it. I love everything you've shared with us. And like I said before, so many comparable lessons that might be you and a canine that apply to me as a mother and my children. So thank you for the life perspective you've helped me gain over these last few minutes together. Oh gosh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, thank you for coming on today. I really appreciate it. It's hope, great to talk. I hope we get to have lunch or do dinner or something sometime. I would just really love to sh- be able to actually so much meet more you to learn. and <laughs> yeah, I mean she's a wealth of knowledge and a wealth of stories. I mean it's amazing. Thank you for being our guest. We appreciate having you on today. If you like what you've heard, you can subscribe for free to the podcast and and give us a rating and review. If you or someone you know has a story about real life that they are, or you are willing to share, please send us uh, either an email at rrpodcast at ksl.com or you can also find us on Facebook at Relentlessly Resilient. Feel free to DM us. We are very available and happy to answer any questions or discuss a, a potential guest appearance on the show. And remember, whatever you do today, remember to be kind. You have no idea the struggles other people are dealing with in their lives. Thank you so much. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear-gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. 
More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.